0: welcome to the squiggly podcast i'm steve henderson and i'm joined as ever by mr ben mitchell ben how are you i am wonderful it's great to be here did you have a good half term i had a wonderful half term yes uh barely noticed it actually happening being as i am right in the middle of uh writing up my phd
1: i assume they they do half terms
0: with phd surely no No, a PhD is is like a big cloud above your head. It it would never leave.
1: Well, Godspeed on that front. (laughs) Thank you very much. Well, we're back again, podcasting
0: as we do every once in a
1: while. And uh, we've got lots of wonderful animation goodness to bring you, again as we do every once in a while.
0: It's what we do or
1: what we do. Who do we have on our February edition of the Squiggly Animation
0: Podcast? I ask you. We've got an interview with the winner uh, of the BAFTA for Best Animated Short, that's Daisy Jacobs. She'll be talking about her film, The Bigger Picture. We've also got an interview with the directors of Sean the Sheep, The Movie, that's Richard Starzak and Mark Burton. We've also got an interview with Raging Balls of Steel Justice director, Mike Mort. Mm. Are you ready? I'm ready and I'm willing. Let's crack on.
1: Mere moments before recording this episode of the Squiggly Podcast, the Oscar winners were announced. Steve, did they rock your world? No. <laughs> no, you weren't you weren't surprised, you weren't thrown by I wasn't surprised, no. Up and comers Disney animation studios. <laughs> Pippin' to the post. <laughs> All
0: the other Well, it's nice to see the underdog <laughs> take an award. No, it wasn't very it wasn't very surprising, was it? I mean everybody kind of Held on thinking, oh, wouldn't it be amazing to see Song of the Sea or or Box Trolls, something with a bit of, you know, a bit of craft win as a character. Part. Yeah, character, craft, uh, win um, this year. But, you know, it, Disney, Disney won. And I'm not saying that the film uh, doesn't have character or craft, but I'm saying that it's, it's a bit of a predictable winner. And um, the Oscars tend to... Especially for the categories that we concentrate on, they tend to be more about who's got the most PR than what necessarily deserves. Uh, and we 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 have to remind ourselves that the Oscars isn't—it's not a peer-reviewed award, is it? The guys who who vote for the Oscars uh, in the animation categories aren't animators, and, and in that respect, you know, many of them abstain or don't even bother watching. The visual effects or the short animation categories.
1: No, it's, uh, that does appear to be the case. As the article on, was it The Hollywood Reporter? Yes. Via Cartoon Brew. Did a wonderful and yet soul destroying little expose (laughs) on just how much everyone gives no shits about animation. (laughs) Very validating to read the same comment over and over again, which is mainly like, Who has time for this
0: (laughs) (laughs) Or my grandkids liked it, or something like that, yeah. I've never heard of it. I'm not giving it any of my time.
1: It puts it all in perspective. I think we've had the the same what are the Oscars really conversation three years in a row, you know, when you look at... uh, I mean, that being said, I think a lot of the other wins in the categories that probably, you know, the Academy and its members therein consider more legitimate, I thought that those were quite agreeable for the most part of the films I'd seen. They seemed sort of fair enough, you know? I feel like, um, in general, outside of animation, maybe it's just that I'm sort of less invested in live-action cinema. I can kind of take it or leave it, and the injustices don't seem quite so unjust, and I expect that's probably exactly how most of the rest of the world look at the animation categories. Yeah. It's like why, why would anyone complain it's a Disney film at one you know <laughs> Everyone loves Disney. Yeah I haven't seen Big Hero Six so maybe it was the best film of all of them. Mm-hmm. And you know I haven't seen Song of the Sea either and I, I doubt very much it's the case because everyone has said that it's a great film and that's very moving and it's re- you know that it's critical acclaim has really uh, preceded mm-hmm. the actual release of the film in a big way. Uh, there's always a slim chance that you know someone could sit in front of a film that has been like hyped to high heavens and be completely unmoved by it. Sure. And think to themselves, "Wow, well, I actually
0: would have preferred to see Big Hero 6. Oh, it could—it can be, it can't even be damaging for a film. Um, mm. I mean, how many times have we been to the cinemas to see a horror film that's been proclaimed as the the worst thing you'll ever see? I remember when um, when Hostel, the original Hostel, came out, and the the trailers and the posters and everything were basically announcing that this film is so terrifying that you will shit your pants. And I remember sitting there waiting for the film to come on and I had the same feeling that I, that you get when you're about to go on a roller coaster. Like, my stomach was churning. I was a bit sort of, oh, my God, this is it. Um, and I was like, this is the most boring piece of shit I've ever sat through but that's I think that's basically because of the huge kind of the hype that you know you see the 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 trailers and the adverts of people in the audience physically jumping and it, it kind of ruins it you know you when so when you get come around to see it you've you, you've got all this expectation and it, and it's unfair to the film to have that kind of expectation placed upon it before you know you sit down and watch it
1: and whereas the overall assessment of big hero six from reading social media and reviews and things like that is it's like yeah Like, it's a sort of take-it-or-leave-it film, so there is a good chance that I'd watch it and and find myself actually a lot more impressed with it Mm -hmm. than I'd expect. So it kind of goes both ways. But I also have no issue with Feast winning. Mm -hmm. The thing is also, like, I mean, Disney are a huge, massive, dominating force, and yet, by that, they're also a very easy target for criticism.
0: Absolutely. Because
1: people can criticize Disney with the knowledge that it's basically the equivalent of throwing a pebble at Disney HQ for how much they would care. <laughs> yeah, so it's' fairly criticism proof in that respect. It was sort of interesting seeing like the sort of the defiant criticism against a film like Feast," which I can't really find fault with it. I could certainly appreciate that it, it gets a little um, maudlin in Disney nearer the end, um, but' that's, it's definitely compensated for and it's not badly animated that's one thing you'll never really be able to to catch disney at mm-hmm. is doing things in half measures unless we're talking about like one of those straight to video you know sequels the dog animation the lighting the approach to the cg the the cinematography it was good filmmaking and i think that's what we're after reasonably oscar worthy that being said i felt that the cinematography and the uh composition and the lighting and everything worked really well for the dam keeper and the strength of story for the bigger picture. And I think maybe people kind of need things to be presented in a package that's more recognizable. Mm -hmm. I mean, think of what the bigger picture is conceptually and how that's going to go over the heads of so many people. Yeah. You and I, Stephen, cultured as we are, (laughs) we see it and we appreciate it. It's where culture vultures, Ben. Exactly. At the very least, we'd know enough, animators and we know enough about the labor and the sort of the degree of investment you have to sort of put in an animated film emotionally to appreciate just what that film did. Mm -hmm. That might be a little lost on a lot of sort of, you know, mainstream audiences.
0: Yeah. Ah well. So yeah, Big Hero Six uh winning uh animated feature and uh feast winning animated short. You can hear our interview with Patrick Osborne and producer Christina Reed, I think is it uh, Jeff Turley as well, Ben? Yeah, yeah, the production designer. Yes, very uh,
1: talented chap, Jeff.
0: The whole gang
1: mm-hmm.
0: on an earlier Squiggly podcast. Uh, which which one was that Ben? Was that the twenty-three? I think it
1: was the uh, twenty-third. Yeah.
0: So uh, if you want to hear a, a uh, an interview with the now Oscar-winning team behind Feast, you have to go back because you know we liked it before it was cool, didn't we, Ben? We
1: certainly did. That's us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> The uh, hipsters that we are.
1: If you are a fan of the aesthetic of Feast, as I'm sure some people would secretly admit that they are, I'd also advise checking out Jeff Turley in his own right. I think he was he was very responsible for a lot of the the visual element of it. And uh, I'm not sure if he's even still at Disney at the moment, but he has a uh, a website with his artwork on it. It's JeffTurley.tumblr.com, which is uh, I love looking at. You know, really good art. Tumblers from genuinely sort of talented people. That's Jeff with a J.
0: That spelling of Jeff. Not the
1: weird, overcomplicated one with a G.
0: Excellent. So uh, it's not just the Oscars that have been handed out. We've also, since the last podcast recorded, it was the BAFTAs. A nice runner-up to the Oscars in many respects. And also very interesting to see that the Lego movie won Best Animated Picture. Because, as we've said on this podcast uh, before, that it's usually the, the winner of the BAFTA, uh, for Best Animated Feature, or Animated Feature rather, goes on to win the Oscar. But that kind of prediction system was was sort of given the middle finger this year when the, the Lego movie uh, went ahead and won. It's all been thrown out of whack. Oh, yes. That made the Oscars a bit more exciting for me. <laughs> um, That's nice. <laughs> you know, as exciting as as exciting as, as as seeing a list can be. Did you stay up to watch the Oscars, or did you get up early? Or... No, okay. no, I went. I went to bed. The thing is, with with coverage in 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 the UK, I mean, we want to see best animated uh, animated feature, animated picture, and VFX. But we're gonna stay up and basically get the red carpet coverage until about three o'clock in the morning. And then nothing else. I suppose so. And Were, were you moved by Emma Stone's Oscar ensemble? I, I've not even looked at the, anything from the red carpet. You need you need to describe this to me, Ben.
1: I, you just said you were watching the red carpet until three a.m.
0: I know. I did that last year and saw nothing about anything that I wanted to see. I saw nothing about animation <laughs> or or anything.
1: You didn't experience any of uh, Doogie Howser's maligned presentation skills. <laughs>
0: no, no. Although before uh, b- before last night, I saw the um, from the Tony Awards, uh, the musical "It's Not Just for Gays" anymore that he did. <laughs> did you see that? He's he's more a Tony Award <laughs> fella. I, I would say that's a good fit. Yeah. What 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 was his standout moments this year at the Oscars?
1: Uh, he, got, he came out in his undies at one point, I think. <laughs> Poor Doogie.
0: Did you actually see the BAFTAs?
1: Um, I think I, I read about the BAFTAs on squiggly.com. It's a good place to read about the BAFTAs. But no, I don't think I watched the actual ceremony uh, live. I was probably yeah. uh, doing something incredibly important like uh, watching Fargo on Netflix while picking dust out of my belly button.
0: So long as you've got an, a, a valid excuse for not watching the BAFTAs, Ben, I'm sure uh, the listeners will mm-hmm. forgive you. I'm sure
1: they can relate.
0: The winners for the the BAFTA this year was uh, for for visual effects, Interstellar, best animated short, the bigger picture, and animated feature, went to the Lego movie, as we've said before. I like the Lego movie. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. Good, good, then we're agreed. (laughs) I was sort of quite moved
1: by the story's message, I suppose, what it basically sort of says about the nature of creativity and things like that, and knowing one's limits and that kind of thing. Although that being said, I, I do think the idea of the double-decker sofa is a good idea. Like, whenever they would make fun of him, I always felt like, hey, that's not that bad. <laughs> you get someone, yeah. like, sit in the middle at the top and then people on the bottom could sit on either side.
0: Yeah. You know. Yeah, well, the Lego people don't really have much of an issue with their legs dangling over the side. There you go, see? Yeah. So
1: what were they complaining about? Well... Give the poor prick a hard time. Yeah. I'm quite looking forward to the Lego Batman film now. I know that Job's in it.
0: Yeah, apparently that's going to be a, 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 a good look at the entire Batman sort of movie franchise as well. So it's going to be an interesting one.
1: Well, you can, you can only do better than Christian Bale.
0: <laughs> really? <laughs> do you not like his. Um...
1: Christian Bale was so shit as Batman that to make fun of how shit he was is now dated and hackneyed. <laughs> Like to do to do the making fun of Christian Bale shitty Batman voice is now such an
0: old crap joke to make. I can't even make it, you know? That's how bad he was. Well that's probably why they probably turned around to Tom Hardy and said, Look, can you do a really terrible bane voice? Because just to detract from from Christian, can you basically sound like he's suffocating on a carrier bag, so just just to give Christian a bit of room. He was dreadful
1: yeah. too. I mean he was so, he was sort of good because he was sort of he's so Good in most things, he's in that to do something so cartoony, yeah, was kind of like it, it was an interesting thing to watch, but it certainly wasn't. I don't know, it, it, it didn't really carry over as a threatening presence, like, his, he was a bit too cute for it. I think, <laughs> I go, if you take off my mask, it'll be incredibly painful uh, for you. <laughs> 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 off, shut your mouth. You expected the henchman's go, oh. <laughs> <shit. laughs> Actually, the bit that really pisses me off of that one, like, he has the Batman fight. At one point, Batman kind of loses his rag and he goes, I wondered what would break first your body or your soul? And then he, you know, beats him up some more and takes him down to his underground bane (laughs) lair. And uh, so then Christian Bale's all, like, beaten up and he's like, Are you going to torture me? Yes, but not your body, your soul. (laughs) You just did the f***ing body-soul thing, <laughs> you unoriginal repeating <laughs> And then f***ing Catwoman, like, shoots him with a BB gun and he dies. <laughs> After, like, uh, being invincible
0: for three hours. What the f*** is that? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> While we're going on about the Bale voices, there's a bit where he's Batman, he doesn't have to do the Batman voice when no one's around. But Catwoman's there and... and you know, Batman's bit is that, like, he'll be talking to Commissioner Gordon. Commissioner Gordon will say something important. He'll turn around and Batman's buggered off. Uh-huh. You know, so he's not there anymore. And he's like, oh, where did Batman go? And, and so in the film, Batman's talking to Catwoman on the roof somewhere and Catwoman buggers off. Mm-hmm. Plays it as his own game. <laughs> and Batman says, so that's what it feels like. <laughs> There's no one around. <laughs> f- and he's yeah. putting on this fucking voice. <laughs> it's like... Why? Why did he just tut or something? Why? Did, why does he? Why did he just go? <sighs> anyway, the best description I heard for the voice was, "He's doing a McGruff the, the Crime Dog <laughs> impression." You know, I'm starting to
1: notice the real flaws in the logic of this franchise. <laughs> this story's full of holes. <laughs> I've been back on the sort of well, uh, comic book convention type circuit touting my wares, trying to get rid of some uh, some leftover stock and the like. It had been a little while since I'd last done a convention, like selling books and things.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: What you forget about um, those sort of things and and the world of cosplay, I believe it's called, and comic book culture. Girls bloody love that clown girl from Batman. Harley Quinn. They can't get enough of her. They, they love dressing up as her. She's the great unifier of all personality and body types and races and creeds and sexual orientations. It doesn't matter. Genders, even. I'm sure guys even like to dress up as her, too. Oh, no. Guys goes the Joker. So then all the Harley Quinns follow him round. Ah, I see. Yeah. So all the girls want to be the the Harley Quinns. Get it? And the guys (laughs) want to to bang the Harley Quinns, I guess. That's how it works. Yeah. Ah, Batman. (laughs) It's probably between that and, like, just sort of the rise of social media and, like, you know the way people can communicate via video games, Mm -hmm. it's probably gone against everything evolution stands for. Because up until recently, evolution was designed to, you know, allow the the, the alpha animals to breed. Mm -hmm. But now, thanks to message boards and cosplay, we got (laughs) nerds banging left and right and center. (laughs) And we're breeding entire new generations of little Harley Quinns and little Jokers. It flies in the face of, of everything I thought I knew about Darwinism. It's incredible, isn't it? <laughs> Forget technology and AR and, you know, Asimov's law and things like that coming to destroy us. It's all it's all geeks f***ing each other. <laughs> That's what's going to be our undoing.
0: Yeah. I, have you seen something that, as a sort of, I would say I'm I'm, I'm... I'm a geek. Yes. Surprise! There's something that really annoyed me recently is that that there's the, all this geek culture and uh, the, the actual geek culture of going to a comic convention um, and looking for, for indie comics like your own and, 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 and others available there and looking through back issues and you know embracing the culture. But there's this thing that really annoyed me uh, earlier on this month when I saw it, and it's called Loot Crate. Have you seen this? No. This is like... You know, uh, is it Crave, where you can order, like, nuts and fruit and stuff to be sent to you every single day? Uh Or, like, people just do everything online nowadays. Yeah, yeah. And this is a service where you can subscribe, and you get a box sent to you every month. A loot crate sent to you every month. And it's got a specific theme, so it will be heroes, and you'll get loads of, like, Batman, Doctor Who. Oh, they're toys. Picard toys, right, okay. it, all the stuff from, and everyone gets the same, I think. But all the stuff from like your Forbidden Planets or your Traveling Man or your, your comic book shops, mm-hmm. I find that pretty. That annoys me because so they have any control over what toys you no, get from what? No, it's yeah. people saying, "I want to be a geek." Click. I'm a geek. Uh, it's become the thing. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It's like, well,
1: no, people with an actual sort of like childhood and personality like will remember the things that they liked as a kid or the things that they you know retained a fondness for, and they'll probably have kept toys or want to buy toys, yeah, that kind of you know unfold who they are, yeah, as decor. i'm I'm sitting mere feet away from a little row of cenobites. The SM inspired demons from Clive Barker's Hellraiser, because I loved that movie as a young whippersnapper. In the other room, I have a Walter from the Big Lebowski toy. And my girlfriend spotted it a couple of weeks ago and goes, Did you get yourself made as a toy?
0: <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Well, that one of them 3D printers.
1: <laughs> it stung for half a second, and then it gave way to a feeling of immense
0: pride. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. She didn't know she was paying you the ultimate compliment. <laughs> but it's just like, why Why do you want, I can see what people want to be involved in this kind of geek culture and stuff, but go to a shop, you know, get stuck in, have a look around on the shelves. If you can't be asked with that, why... Be lazy about it. Why order it? Well, it's because it's becoming popular. It's becoming a such a big thing. It's you know, it's becoming a bit easy now.
1: So, what was that thing called? Loot. Loot crate. Loot crate. You're having a look. I think I should start my own loot crate. But like every month, people get like a new loot, as in the instrument.
0: <laughs> but like a, a huge crate full of loots.
1: Every month, a new one full of different... <laughs> so, by after like five months, they have like a thousand other things. Yeah, and you... It's like a record club. They, they can't unsubscribe. <laughs> it'll, it'll go down incredibly well with the hipsters, I'm sure. <laughs> they, ne- they need a new crap instrument <laughs> to pretend to be
0: moved by. Yeah. Well, now the ukulele is on its way out. <laughs> so,
1: uh, nominated for an Oscar, but uh, winner of the BAFTA... Staisy Jacobs of the National Film and Television School with her film The Bigger Picture, which we talked about uh, at a reasonable length, I believe, in the last episode of the podcast. I think we both sort of are equally impressed by it, I think certainly in terms of its scale.
0: I mean, I, that kind of thing gives me a headache to think about. Well, the, the thought of actually being able to create something like that.
1: Yeah, like to be able to do something like that like in software would give me a headache.
0: So to actually do it for it's like
1: when I see like, we have like a video of like Mikey Please and working on Marilyn Miller and things like that. And you think, oh my god, this stuff was just all made. You're used to it like in a certain context on a stop-motion set. Um, you see the puppets in the sets, and it's all very impressive, and the craftsmanship is great and everything like that. But when you're doing something that's really something... I, I think this is kind of the first time this kind of film has been done. I may be wrong. Would you say that that's...
0: I think... Similar things have been been attempted as as pixelation and painting on walls. I mean, you you know of blue, um, the the graffiti artist. Um, so as similar things have been done, but they've never been put together and and in this way. This is this is truly unique um, in its in its own sort of contained style for like narrative fiction. Absolutely, yeah. It's it is.
1: You usually, see it more as like art projects or. Sort of abstract experimental type film. Yeah,
0: that's that's yeah, hit nail on the head there. She's really sort of reined it in and put it together and put it all to good use as well. And you'll hear in the interview, she talks about how the uh the animation, you know, lent itself to exaggeration of emotion and, and you know, the the drama which, which unfolds in the film. Um, and if anyone hasn't seen the film, I urge them to try and see it. I think there's, I think it's available on iTunes for the moment as part of the uh, the the Oscars uh, nominated films list. So I urge people to try and get hold of it. Um, and I think there's a BAFTA tour going around the UK of films. So seek it out. It's it's definitely worth seeing, as are the others uh, nominated um, and winners of the other awards. Um, but yeah, she really puts it to good use, and it's a very strong story as well. I, uh, well, we have talked about this on the, the past podcast, but I, I'm just, I just love the story. I'm, I'm hooked by the story and the idea of uh, these two brothers not getting along and all this kind of stuff. It's a yeah, wonderful stuff. Uh, they've recently um, successfully raised money for a second film on Kickstarter, which is great to see because graduate films uh, get given all this attention and and uh, especially the strong ones from the strong schools such as National Film Television School and, and Royal College of Arts. They get all the attention and stuff and, and they kind of fail to build on that momentum. Some artists are incredibly good at it and some artists kind of maybe get caught up in the entire circus that they have to run through when they've got a successful film and then disappear into obscurity as the next year comes along and you don't really hear much. But Daisy... Jacobs and Chris Wilder—they're not not rested on their laurels at all. They've they've set off straight away and, and successfully raised money for a a Kickstarter campaign um, for their second film, and they've not given many details away yet. Um, but they've given they've given us a few uh, tasty little details in this uh, this upcoming interview. Daisy Jacobs, thank you very much for talking to Squidly today. Just for those who haven't seen the film or haven't been um, to the festivals or i seen it anywhere. Uh, how would you describe the film in your own words?
3: I would say it's a life-size animation, a stop-motion animation, and it deals with two sons, say two brothers, that are looking after their elderly mother, who has become ill, and one of them wants her to go into the home, and the other one doesn't, and it's about their tension, really.
0: Very succinct. Perfect. <laughs> exactly how I describe it. The relationship between the brothers was a major um, uh, kind of. Uh, it really drew me into the film. Um, as a as an animation fan, I'm a huge fan of the animation process, which you yourself and and Chris Wilder have developed. But the story is extremely strong and really drew me in. Um, the, the development between the characters um, Richard, who's a kind of arrogant, um, sort of brash figure. I think he likes to probably thinks himself as a little bit of a James Bond character. And then the sort of more more sort of sensitive Nick who's there left caring for his mother but not getting any of the credit. Oh, yes,
3: that's right.
0: How did you develop this relationship in the writing? Well, I, I
3: like to look at characters that are very complex and that have a um Good and bad qualities. So Richard's good qualities would probably be that he is there with his mum and likes to chat and is jolly. Whereas Nick is not very jolly. He's quite grumpy with it, but he does do what needs to be done. So he's slightly he's slightly mastering himself. And again, Richard Richard doesn't. He is not there when anything really needs to be done. So they they are a mixture of good and bad, which so that's very much what I looked at when I was writing their characters.
0: It's like a yin and yang approach, really.
3: Yes, yes, but with making sure that they weren't too far good and bad.
0: What what drew you to this story, to sort of tell this story?
3: Well, I was interested in the sort of family dynamics when someone's ill and The care that's needed I think that's a very difficult time for families and it's certainly one that we had in our own family so I think there's something in my own experiences that I wanted to look at
0: What do you think um, using animation as opposed to live action brought to this kind of to to tell him this story?
3: I think the key thing animation is that objects or the room is almost like another person or an extension of a character so when Nick is feeling angry the room is responding in that way or what he's doing is exaggerated so if he's pouring a Uh, tea it can overflow or he hoovers up everyone in the room so we get a sense of how he's feeling through something surreal happening which animation lends itself to
0: Mm -hmm. Absolutely, the the way that the characters interact in the room um, straight away it's a kind of a showcase of the technique where um, Nick slams open the cupboard door And uh, Richard's left kind of, you know, bearing the brunt of that, but still painted on the actual around the scenery and things. Um, Could you tell me a little bit about the technique and how you came to develop it? Was it experimental from the beginning? Or was it something that you've perfected beforehand in in like, you know, uh, tests and things? Yes, I
3: did in the first year at the NFTS, I did two tests. The first one was the life-size painting on its own, and you couldn't tell the characters were large, so I did a second test where they started to interact with objects. I think initially it was just paper, so the characters would pick up paper because it's very light. They were in an office, and they were picking up bits of paper. And then from there we did a few more tests to do with real arms coming out so they could reach further into the space. And then when we made the actual... Uh, film, it was just everything but far more complex, like two characters acting, lots of arms going in and out and thinking things up, you know, motion control. So there were all sorts of things that I hadn't been able to test because there were just so many, but I had a good idea of the core technique before I started.
0: So when you did begin on this kind of grand scale, were there any kind of surprises that you came across that you weren't expecting?
3: What really surprised me was that certain aspects that I thought would take a long time, so the Hoover suck-up was actually relatively quick. I mean, it's still sort of a week, but I thought it could take much longer, but very quickly. Whereas other other sections, for example, they explode. They took such a long time, and I hadn't really factored in how long it would take to have to push in the scaffolding, go up it, paint, come back down, pull it out, and then do the same again and again every frame. And I think, so I think that was the main thing, was not quite knowing how long things would take and being surprised by how quick some things were. So when the motion control went, when that was very, very complicated, that added a whole extra element you had to be aware of. It's basically like a camera that then moves Every single frame, it will move with you. So just an, another layer you're aware of. And when that was taken out, um, we were so quick afterwards because just having an extra thing to think about made such a difference to the time. So I think that, that was the most interesting for me is quite how quick or long things take. So I have more of an idea now of how the technique works.
0: So when you pitched this idea and told the NFTS that you wanted to make an animation, a stop-motion animation, but not using a tabletop. You wanted to use, effectively, a warehouse or a a room-sized set um, to, you know, not just for one day. I'm I'm presuming that it was weeks on end you were using this space. Um, What was the reaction? Well, I I
3: actually needed uh, one of their main spaces for six months and it was a space that doesn't belong to the animation department, it belongs to the cinematography department, so they were very, very lenient letting me in there. Uh, I think it it was quite hard. You at, at the NTS you have green light meetings, just like I suppose you do in real life. And you have to basically pitch your idea, do your drawings, storyboards, miniature models, etc., character designs, and you have to really convince everyone that this is worth doing. And I think for me, it was very split. There was there were some people who were really hugely for it, and others who couldn't see the benefit of it being life size or didn't quite understand what I was trying to do, and I think that was, it was a very challenging time for me to convince everyone, but once I was able to convince everyone, then I received a lot of support from the school.
0: Excellent. Was uh, was it all shot in camera?
3: Yes, so it's all in camera, other than one uh, link at the end of the tunnel, the hospital tunnel, into the hospital room with the bed. That, that obviously is... Um, that was done afterwards, but everything
0: else is in camera. So what can you tell us about your experience at the National um, Film Television School? Is it a nurturing environment, or is there anything that you felt uh, that you developed as a, as a filmmaker, not just in technique, but in kind of the filmmaking process? I
3: think what the NTS is good for is learning how to work with others and by, by the fact that they have different departments so they have the cinematography department the editing department the writing department and so on it means that you all work together on the final film and and that works very well so it's like you've got your ready-made crew if you like and they also are very heavy on story and storyboarding in the first year which is really essential because a storyboard is basically the most important thing when you're working with others because that's the thing that really pulls everyone together and everyone can understand and take away and add their own thing to it so I think that's been very useful for me and also the idea of how you make a film from start to finish exactly and how, even if it's a smaller film, that's how you would make a larger film even. All the stages, all the people that you'd work with and I think that's been yeah, it's been really excellent.
0: So that's a big thumbs up from you then.
3: Yes, I, I think the. There is it's still, I would say, it's a, best, a very challenging environment. I wouldn't. I, I think I'm not sure if nurturing is the right word. I think that they obviously try and bring out the best in you. But it is a. I would say it's still a competitive environment, but in a way that reflects more the real world. So, maybe tough love is better. <laughs> yeah.
0: so, uh So you, you appear to be. And going for it straight away. There's no resting on your laurels here. You 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 already set up a Kickstarter campaign for for the next step. Um, with yes, uh, with fine. the well, can you tell us a little bit about that project?
3: Yes. So if yes, you're right, I I seem to have a problem with not being able to not work. So yes, we're going straight on to the next one and. This next film is again to do with family and again, based loosely on my own experiences. And it's to do with the idea of dispersal and people drifting apart and not fully connected to each other anymore. And yes, and it will be the life-size technique again. And I've got lots of uh, new ideas to go with that that we've been testing. So the Kickstarter, is really essential because even though I've raised a lot of money from awards, which I'll be pushing towards making the film, uh, we still need this amount from Kickstarter. Yeah. And then we should have the full amount. We've got the crew, almost exactly the same crew as on the bigger picture, with a, a few additions due to people doing other things or um, and so on. And yes, yeah. so it's, it's really, I'm really excited. So um, hopefully we'll start animating in June.
0: Brilliant. Straight straight away almost. In animation terms at least. Yes. How what can you tell us about this, about the crew uh, that you work with on this film and hopefully for the next film?
3: So uh Christopher Wilder is my co animator and he does the stop motion element, so he'll do all the arms and what they're picking up. And when we have larger stop-motion bits, we then work together on that, Um, because I very much stick to the paint normally, and we've got Max Williams, he's the cinematographer, and he's really fantastic, and he's had to uh, figure out how to light uh, this world that we've created, which is half a flat and half a real room. trying to light into the flat or from the flat and we're we're experimenting with a lot of different materials on this next film for how light can shine through certain areas and so on so that he's he really has to be quite innovative himself with his lighting and he's yeah very supportive and then we've got um elo She's still uh, working with us, she was the production designer for The Bigger Picture. She has got, she's had lots and lots of work, so she's really um, just helping with what she can, when she can, because she still wants to be involved, but she can't take on the whole um, role, because it's it's a very, very big role this time, it's got about eight sets, and a lot of things to do that are made out of wood. So we've got Peter, our new production designer, and he's um, basically can make anything out of wood. So it's exactly exactly what we need. And we've also uh, got a new producer, because Chris, he's, he's again moving on to other things. I think he's very involved in Hull and he's looking more for live action and uh, feature films. So we've got uh, a yeah, the new, the new producer, Elliot. He seems yeah, he was really excellent, and I think he normally works on commercials, so it's very good because that means he'll have a good idea of mixed media and how that works. So and we've got Jonas, uh, who did the sound on the bigger picture, he's working with us, and Hugh Bunford who did the music, he'll be doing the music again. So really, almost everyone is there again.
0: So you're becoming almost like a family then, all all uh, uh, working together?
3: Yeah. we all get on really well.
0: I want to ask you a bit about um, yourself and yours and Chris's technique uh, because I've seen pictures on your website of the arms and they all look like, obviously uh, because of, uh, what's it called, like a a forced viewpoint, the arms have to be quite long but they're also attached to the wall. How how do you attach it to the wall? Oh, the staple gun. Oh, wow. And was it like a big MDF wall or...?
3: I'm not sure what the wall was made out of, but it, it they are those um, flats that you can use on job sets. I'm not sure if they're canvas around wood. I'm not sure. They're just the flats that they use for set builds.
0: Wow. So was it, was it difficult keeping the items up in up in the air and things like that? Was there was there no rigs to keep the keep the arms up then, or anything?
3: I mean, sometimes we'd use bits of tape, hmm. um, but. No, although on this next one we are looking at having rigs because it's more elaborate what we're doing. But then we seem to manage with the staple gum.
0: Excellent. And how much paint did you get through?
3: Oh, so much paint. <laughs> I think three small boxes arrived on the first day and it cost about £1,000 and they looked so tiny. I thought, oh, this is not going to be anywhere near enough paint. So I had to, in the end, use... Lot cheaper paint from these and then use nice paints just
0: for the surface layer. Well, we're looking forward to um seeing the Kickstarter campaign hopefully, fingers crossed, succeed and see what comes next. Uh, but yeah. for now, very best of luck with the uh, upcoming award season. You must be very excited. Oh, yes, thank
3: you. Yes, very
0: excited. And thank you very much for talking to Wiggly today.
3: Oh, thank you very much.
0: So that was
1: Daisy Jacobs director of The Bigger Picture, the now BAFTA-winning
0: Bigger Picture. It's nice to see British Animation doing so well. And when it comes to the Oscars and the BAFTAs, it seems that we do rely on our student films um, quite a bit. I
1: think in a way it's, a, well, the, the sort of easy point to make that I've probably made before is that there's more the sort of panic sense when you're a student of, okay, this is my shot. <laughs> like, i got to do a good job here, and especially if you have the... Um, what I imagine is quite a lot more kind of pressure to perform to an industry standard at a place like uh, NFTS. Mm-hmm. It would be hard to think of a bad NFTS film. You know, I can think of NFTS films that I want the audience for, mm-hmm. but I'd still have to concede that they were well done. Mm. Generally speaking, I think there's just a lot of quality control. They keep an eye on the students and they keep an eye on all the sort of members of the team and everything like that. Everyone has a good thing to say about just how much of it is is taken seriously.
0: It, it, it seems like a fascinating workplace the idea that if you need a writer, you go to the writers' department. If you need a producer, you go to the producers' department. And all these people leave the NFTS and go on to become writers because their the school gives them such good training that they are now industry, you know, industry standard writers or you know, industry standard producers, and they get given all the the tools they need to continue and do that. Um, so yeah, it's nice to see that that um, Daisy is is kind of picking up and 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 running with it and. And a new film is on the way, and hopefully, start filming in June, and uh, we'll see we'll see some of it soon. Hopefully, um, later on in the year, and uh, or next year, even. I'm not pushing her too hard, <laughs> and I'm sure we'll catch up with her on Squiggly soon. Yes.
1: To find out more about the bigger picture, visit thebiggerpicturefilm.com. dot Stephen. How was your Valentine's Day, old friend? Did you take in a show, perchance? Maybe spend it with that irrepressible rogue, Mr. Christian Grey? No. (laughs) No? No, I did not. Me neither. Funny, that.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You're going to say the same story as me. Go ahead. (laughs) I don't know, am I? You're going to say how you went to the cinemas with your beloved, (laughs) bypassed the enormous queues of couples, eagerly waiting, or at least 50% of the queue, eagerly awaiting to see... Uh, Fifty Shades of Grey, and then walked into the theatre afterwards that was showing Shaun the Sheep.
1: Well, you know, we, we know how to do it right. Mm-hmm. I really was very impressed by it. I thought it was... Um, it was Aardman being Aardman in a way that um, they haven't really, when it comes to features, since probably Chicken Run. I mean, you could think of the, the high degree of quality of the subsequent films, Wallace and Gromit mainly, and of course um, The Pirates. And depending on... Your taste, stuff like flushed Away and uh, Arthur Christmas. Mm -hmm. But I think that the the real roots of what Aardman are, to a lot of people our age, certainly, haven't been as represented by a film as they were with this film. Um, And that is pure uh, physical comedy, pure respect for the audience via animation, through communicating ideas really, really clearly without needing to rely on visual effects or dialogue or celebrity voice cast, things like that. The things that, in general, are always going to be a major factor of any kind of mainstream Hollywood release. I think that being a comparatively independent release, it's really served the story of the film well and the execution of the film well.
0: There's no evidence of tampering, really, is there? It's like pure, undiluted Aardman. And it's it's an excellent step up from the series, but still retains all the... Um, it's kind of slapstick sensibilities and everything that that you could love about Shaun the Sheep, um, just kind of yeah, undiluted and and just expanded upon on the big screen. I I, I loved every second of it. I, I had a smile on my face from start to finish, and that smile only stopped when I was either laughing or or just you know I'd I loved it. Absolutely loved it.
1: I think the smile stopped on my face when, as soon as the credits roll, they have to throw in the f***ing crap song.
0: Yeah, Rizzle Kicks.
1: Even this film couldn't escape that. <laughs> and I kind of, you know, because I know some people who worked on it, and you kind of want to, like, catch your, your friend's name show up yeah. in the credits. I'm sorry, guys, but I had to bail. <laughs> I mean, it's not, it wasn't as offensive as, like, Arthur Christmas, I think, ended with a Justin Bieber song. Which I think is sort of the equivalent of, like, filling up the room with gas to get people out (laughs) of the cinema so they can start cleaning up. Yeah. But yeah, this was, uh, uh, that was unnecessary. I mean, especially when, during the film, and I I guess there are probably people who haven't seen it yet, so I don't want to go into too much of of what happens. But uh, there is a musical number in the film, (laughs) which is absolutely perfect. Yes how it's done, how it's animated, how it's orchestrated, how it's integrated into the overall story, couldn't do it better. Yeah. <laughs> so that any song you'd put in the credits, unless it was a reprise of that moment, would be in its shadow. I know it kind of, it, it felt like a good old-timey classic comedy, something something. I think that, you know, it would be a too grand a statement to equate it with the work of someone like Tati, but as a kind of modern-day, family-friendly, animated equivalent. I think it probably did a better job than something like The Illusionist did. Yeah. Which was a, it was a, I guess you could call that a comedy, a dramedy, perhaps. Uh relied on a lot of physical humor, but it wasn't especially gripping. No. Like, throughout. And I think that this one, I think the way that sort of classical comedy succeeds in a modern film is that little element of contemporization and that was what they did perfectly with uh, a grand day out and the wrong trousers certainly most of the episodes of the sean the sheep tv show mm-hmm. and various other short films that they've done over the years because you know say what you will about like i mean wallace and gromit there's dialogue in it but the real strong moments are you know the the stuff that where nothing is being said you're just watching things unfold the Amazing, like heist when he's asleep, and yeah, uh, the escape on the model train, and things like that.
0: You watch the Wallace and Gromit shorts, and there isn't an awful lot of dialogue in there simply because there's no real need for him, you know, there's not an ounce of fat on the Wallace and Gromit short. It's what needs to be said isn't said to be a character's catchphrase or to to go back on, on jokes or anything like that. It's done with respect to the story and respect to the character. And also respect to the, enti- to the entire the entire film, really. You know, there's like I say, there's not an ounce of fat on him. And it's the same with Shaun the Sheep. Um, and although we're there comparing it to silent and slapstick and um, tatty and, and, and all the rest, and maybe Chaplin and Keaton, I think it also owes a lot to the Beano and the Far Side, especially those kind of comics and the, those kind of comic ideas.
1: I'd say probably more the Beano than the Far Side. Yeah. I think being no humor, being no sort of that sort of British sense of like childlike anarchy, mm-hmm. that's always been kind of an Ardman mainstay. And also I think like it kind of has informed their visual style a little bit, certainly if you go back to like when it all began. Mm-hmm. Whereas the far side was, I mean, I can see certainly the sort of visual puns relating to farmyard animals that definitely reared its head in, in the far side. But it was a very different kind of humor overall it was a very american very dry very kind of um dark in a way that would go over a lot of middle america's heads Mm -hmm. i'd see a point certainly but i I would say that the beano was probably more of a like a, a visible component of it as far as like cultural influence yeah and also like you say sort of silent comedians and uh in terms of the Ardman spirit, Peter Lord is a huge champion of, you know, the the traditions and the tropes of comedy from its sort of origins. And he's always a guest at the Bristol Slapstick Festival. He'll always do a presentation. And it's clearly something that's very important because obviously physical comedy is also a huge part of American films. You know, like I mean, any Pixar film will have a, a series of segments that are based on old timey comedy. Well, not even that, but based on, you know, physical comedy based on wordless comedy based on action reaction cause and effect For some reason the reason the one that comes to mind most of all is is uh, any of the sort of major kitchen sequences and ratatouille yeah. just how kind of high oct but it's all very it's all very modernized it's all very like high paced it's all very kind of i think it draws on influences that in turn draw on older influences mm-hmm. So it kind of, it, over the years, you get these different sort of variations of, you know, what good effective physical comedy is. So comparatively speaking, probably Shaun the Sheep is more, it goes back a little further. It's more kind of traditional. Uh, I think in that respect, it's a lot easier for, for older people to enjoy it. You know, it's a very easy watch with kids and it's a perfectly good date movie. Yeah. If you're, uh, if you're in our world. And it's, it's clever. Oh, yes. And it's funny, I guess, is the main thing. It's, it's a funny film. Yeah. Having a kind of... I mean, I haven't watched... I don't know every episode of the TV show backwards, you know, but I've watched enough of it to know what the premise is and what the character dynamics more or less are. I think that some of the sort of more, like, modern references work quite... They sit alongside the very sort of classical moments quite effectively because it's all bound by this very... The aesthetic, I guess, of Shaun the Sheep is is a very unifying thing. You know, so you can have like a, a Silence of the Lambs reference, and then you know a kind of slapstick French restaurant scene. Yeah, stuff you can see coming a mile off, but is wonderful because you're just sort of waiting for it. You know?
0: That that restaurant scene particularly is straight out of 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 the old days, isn't it?
1: Yeah, very trad. Yeah, and then I love just a little kind of wry little thing. Like I love Timmy disguised as a Timmy backpack. Yes, I thought <laughs> <laughs> that was nice. Very better. <laughs> Yeah, you know, the villain was great. The dog with the awful teeth. Oh yeah, <laughs> that whole little sort of sub story there. Was, yeah, everything. I think I felt more desire to bring this film up with people than I think I, I would have with. I guess maybe it's just more like what I I have always sort of gotten from Armin. It more sort of appeals to, to that. And I think also in in the sort of recent revisiting of their old shorts, the lip sync series, they did that presentation. In Bristol a couple months ago, mm-hmm. I think that was a nice excuse for a lot of people to be reminded of their roots in a lot of respects. Yeah, wonderful stuff, wonderful stuff. And we have an interview with the directors Richard Golly, Starzak, and Mark Burton. Our boy Nathan, whenever to interview them when they were doing the uh, the junkets and such. Let's uh, let's hear what they have to say. This is directors Richard Starzak and Mark Burton.
4: So obviously, Ardman is like used to like the silent characters, looking particularly at Gromit. And so, um, was it hard to, like, master doing an entire silent film? I mean, I know yesterday you said it was a slapstick comedy rather than a silent film. Yes. Itself. So, uh,
5: yeah, did you uh, have any difficulties trying to express a lot of the emotion and things uh, like that. Well, I mean, as uh, is Mark speaking, um, uh, it was a challenge for us. We knew it was going to be a challenge to do it for 75 minutes. Pixar tried it for 30 minutes, and <laughs> yeah. then they went out in, in, on uh, Wally. Yeah. Uh, and the, the first 30 minutes of Wally was fantastic. Yeah. Um, but in, funny enough, in terms of expressing uh, the emotion and, uh, of the story, it, it doesn't make it harder because, you know, a lot of, um, uh, you know, most powerful communication is non-verbal communication and um, they always say you can watch a good film with the sound turned down, yeah. um, so as well as the visual you know, expressions that we can get from the puppets, you know, there, are, there is sound and there is a brilliant expression that we get from the, from the voice artists as well, so, so the, 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 the challenge uh, in terms of expressing emotion um, of not having dialogue, that wasn't such an issue for us, it was more making sure we could tell a good story that would last as long as it needed to last. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I mean the the whole non-dialogue thing is is a sort of interesting area because initially we did it on we did it on a series for Economy, and you as an animator know that lip sync takes a lot of time, and we thought we could tell seven-minute stories with no dialogue. In fact, it's an Ardman tradition, you know. If you look at our Nick Park's early films, he'd storyboard them before he ever thought of dialogue, so you could clearly see the story and the and the story arcs for the characters from the drawings and. Um, so we extended that into the film. Awesome. Uh, yeah. So uh, like Ireland like started off
4: obviously in the shorts like you were just talking about, and like would you say like Ireland's now got used to like the business of making
2: features now? Do you think like they've found their element? Would you say? I th- yeah, I think so. I mean, it's been fantastic for myself and Mark. We uh, we co-wrote and directed the film, but we also had um, the backup of the studio behind us. Now with all the experience, you know, yeah. with Nick. Nick Parker, Steve Box, is co director, and Way Rabbit and uh Peter Law and Dave Sproxton, the company founders, and also um Paul Culy and Julie Lockhart producers, they they've got story bones as well. They, they, and so ha- to have all that help, uh, was fantastic. It was like our brain's trust and um and you know it was it could be tough you know they could come in and say that's just not working you know they could be quite brutal and um, tough love tough love yeah yeah. and it it worked it worked Mm. it works really well but I
5: think also I mean you know Arben's got a very strong commercials division um, and there's a TV series and um, there's a half hour coming up so you know so Arben is is involved in other genres and TV genres um, and you know the feature side is, is one element obviously one major element is gradually getting more and more experience. It, uh, well, I'm glad you mentioned like the half hour thing because they're uh, like back
4: in October. Obviously, we they announced the Shaun the Sheep was getting a half hour special. Yes. Are you able to tell us anything about that at all?
2: Uh, it, it hasn't it really been public. <laughs> uh? the, the working title. I thought yes. Yeah, somehow the um, the, the uh, synopsis got out onto the internet and kind of, I think we managed to get rid of it again. But it's uh, it, I'll I'll tell you it's called the Farmers Llamas. Yeah and it's about the farmer that inadvertently buys some llamas and what happens on the farm as a result. Um, but that's all I can say. Okay. Um There will be llamas. Yes, lots
5: of llamas. <laughs> that's a good... <laughs> not lots, you can't afford lots. Uh, There'll be a few <laughs> llamas. See,
2: that's a good, really good Hollywood title, that. there will be yeah. llamas. <laughs> that does sound very dramatic, does not it? There will yeah. be llamas. Yeah, well, Thomas I'm
5: Anderson's directing
4: it. <laughs> yeah. Um, now, like Mark, we've seen you like in the writing chair for a lot of animated films, Correct, some arguments, yeah. some DreamWorks, like Madagascar. Yes. And... Um, so what was it like to like sit in the director's chair for this project yeah. um,
5: uh, well it's a more comfy expensive chair <laughs> um, but um, it was a big learning curve for me actually and um, I had t- two advantages one is you know Golly has, has a lot of production experience so I was able to go to him for advice and things but also all the people at Ardman, you know the craft the art directors the designers the animators you know the riggers whatever they're all so great that you know I I didn't need to have all the technical skills. What I what I required to bring was storytelling skills, and and um, and, and they could help me kind of you know to sort of bring that um, you know to fruition. Um, and uh, I always describe it as like um, you know getting into the driving seat of a Rolls Royce. That's what it's yeah. like to direct a film at Hardman, you know, because you just got the best people around you.
2: Yeah, it's a big comfy car.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Would you say like you approached Shaun the Sheep like you were making a kids show? Or like you're making like a slapstick comedy. Like, is there much different? Would you say there's much difference between the two?
2: Well, I think we kind of we the approach was can um, take it completely, play it straight, take it completely seriously, um, and we you know the the writing process was uh, was very you know, with Mark's experience. It's very vigorous, and we kind of we we had a story and we stuck to it, um, and we 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 made that work. Not a lot of laughs at that point, I have to say. And even thinking of the jokes isn't particularly funny. It mm-hmm. starts to become... I suppose it starts to become funny once we start to visualise it and storyboard it. Uh, I, actually, the early process, we, we used to make each other laugh by saying, wouldn't it be funny if the farmer became a hairdresser? Ha, 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 she is, she is a hairdresser. She's going to have lunch. That's good, yeah. uh, There'd be lots of that, but but structuring the story was uh, was a very serious process. Storyboarding it, yeah, we just... Tr- uh, the, I think... Ardman's best comedies when we play absolutely straight, mm-hmm. uh, and allow the comedy to come through that. And um, yeah. I think i just to add to that.
5: Uh, uh, you know, one thing but we never do is we never think of it as a kids movie. We don't no, think of no, it. No. Um, and and in fact, you know, in animation, you, you no one thinks of it as a kids thing anymore. You know, it's yeah, you might say it's a family thing, yeah. but actually, me and me and Golly, me and Richard only ever did what made us laugh. Um, and um, you know, the story we would come up with would be a story that we would want to see, yeah. Um, and so, you don't really dumb down or patronize
2: in that sense. Yeah. And I think if you do that, that's kind of you know, that's going to be yeah, the death yeah. of it, really. Well, we, um, don't, we don't necessarily think of adult jokes and kids' jokes either, mm-hmm. we just think of gags, yeah. And uh, occasionally, one would come up and think, well, that's maybe that's a bit maybe that's a bit uh, risque or maybe that's or maybe that detracts if the kids don't get that maybe that'll detract from the story but apart from that we just we just went to what what made us laugh like Rob said
4: well, like speaking of like the risky jokes and stuff like that, like uh, we were talking uh, earlier on, like pirates had a bit of a risky joke with like a leprosy mm-hmm. yeah. gag that was like taken out for obvious yeah. reasons. Mm-hmm. And like, were there any jokes like that, like gags that like, got thrown out in the writing room for being um, a bit too much?
5: No, or? we we didn't uh, th- we, <laughs> we didn't throw any gags out. Um, in fact, I think they all went in. Apart from yeah. some jokes got cut for other reasons. We had a joke about. Um, which I think it might have made into a trailer where um the flock are in the city and they see what looks like a happy sheep sign and it turns into a kebab <laughs> sign and they run off screaming uh, and it wasn't we didn't take it out because we were worried about you know the whole thing about meat eating or anything <laughs> it, we just felt like it was delaying the story yeah. so um and in fact there's a couple of jokes in there like there's a joke um uh, which is actually a reference to um, um, the perfumo scandal of the '60s, Christian Keeler of the farmer sitting on a chair naked uh, in in his photo shoot. You know, it's all done very tastefully. I should hasten to add, folks. Um, but uh, and and you know, again, you know, we came up with that idea as an image, and we just thought, well, you know, probably seventy percent of the audience won't necessarily understand where it's from, but they'll laugh. It's a funny image, and for thirty percent, they'll they'll get the reference, and yeah. Yeah. so. The one thing we did do actually was that we had a storyline about the farmer getting knocked on the head Mm -hmm. and um, we did, uh, you know, which we treat lightheartedly, but there's a sort of sensitive side to it. It's quite an emotional story. And it did make us give us an idea to to, to approach a charity actually called Headway, who specialise in uh, helping people with head injuries. But we we included it all. We didn't cut anything, mm-hmm. but we, we but we were aware that there was another side to that, and so we kind of approached them.
2: So that's that's yeah. a slight irony, isn't it? Is that, that the whole idea of slapstick is is to do with some kind of violence? Yeah. Uh, some kind of pain is enjoying <laughs> watching other people in pain. I think yeah. is part of the, the comedy. <laughs> it's, but it's, yeah. it's, more, it's increasingly more difficult to do without offending somebody. So, yeah. yeah. yeah.
4: Um, like I watched the film yesterday and I just like loved it. Oh, great. And I felt like it was a lot more emotional than a lot of the previous Arman films. And so like I was wondering like uh like Aardman has like their style of storytelling like they're very quirky yeah. and like funny in their own way. And uh like is there something about like the coupling of the humor and emotion that you think like you've tapped into? With uh, this film, and possibly like with Sean in the future,
5: I think. Say? Well, I think that's something that I mean. You know, it's nice to hear you say that because I mean, in a way, that's for you to say, not for us to say. But I think we, um, me, me and Richard started out saying we want to make a film that is funny and touching. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, to hear you say that is great for us because it's like we can tick both those yeah. boxes. You know, because I don't think, I, I, and I think people sort of say, you know, they treat it as if it's two different things, but actually if you've got an emotional story and you, and you are rooting for the characters in the story, they will be funnier and, and the jokes will be funnier because you care.
2: Yeah, yeah. It, it, and in fact, dating right back to the first series, there's an episode in series one, uh, where the sheep are trying to stop the farmer cutting down their tree that they like playing in, in their field. He, he wants to cut it down for firewood and he, he almost cuts it down and then he sees the carving in the tree and it's a little smiley face. And then you mix back to when he was a kid and he's playing in the tree and enjoying being around the tree and hanging out of it. And right at the end, he, he's as a kid, he's carving this smiley face in the tree and then, then you mix through to the current day and the smiley face is sort of all gnarly and he's yeah. old and bold, you know. We played it in the studio, one of our producers burst into tears and run out and I thought, that's <laughs> good. <laughs> I made her cry that's that's, that's, a, that's an amazing great feeling that's almost as good as making them laugh you know and it, it just struck me that that sean the, the possibility of like a, a greater emotional depth in the kind of average um children's tv show i suppose
5: yeah. yeah i mean and to answer the second part of your question I, I you know it remains to be seen but hopefully some of those emotional ideas can carry through to the next series and into the half yeah. and so on. yeah
4: right yeah um, and so like yeah you were saying about the first series and obviously like Sean Sheep started way back in 2007 and uh, so it's almost been eight years since it um, yeah. been going it's been going really strong so do you th- what's changed in like the way of story and also like animation production would
2: you say I suppose we've um, got a bit quicker maybe we've got a bit quicker <laughs> yeah uh, um, the stories have changed I think we've just got better with the characters have developed through the process yeah. of making the series so it's it's easier to know nu- once you know the characters I think it's easier to, to work, work out stories for them and and I think like Mark said I think the um, the emotional side will feed back into the series is that we know the characters a bit more so maybe we can tap into some more uh, sort of more profound stories now um, yeah well, yeah that's
4: it <laughs> and uh, last question Like, what was the most fun part of making the film
5: um, I'm quite enjoying this, actually, because we've finished. <laughs> now we can just uh, uh, relax. But, um, no, I mean, it was, I suppose, uh, when, when you've... Um, the, the most fun thing is sometimes when you have an idea uh, for a scene or for a joke or, or, or for, even for a character, and you see it realised, and it works. That's a great feeling, you know. And there was some... I mean, I'll give you an example, was the um, the joke about the psycho pit bull. Yeah. in the prison you know. know, and uh and we had this idea early on and and um and then we put it on the storyboards and it was kind of working there and then we put it into the um you know into the film we animated it and um and, and actually the, the 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 character doesn't move in those shots It's actually um there's no animation it's just actually just a <laughs> locked off shot but then we, we played it for the first time in front of an audience and they roared with laughter and that was a great feeling that we'd got that right because that's a kind of to have a gag which is based on a non-moving character is yeah. quite unusual so. yeah there's sort of,
2: a paradox there we're doing make an animated film and the best laughs, <laughs>, <Yeah>. <laughs> there's
5: no animation <laughs> yes, we, can, we can make the next one that's cheaper if we did that all yeah. the time that's true Yeah.
2: and I just uh, I, th- I still got very fond memories when we when you think of a really daft idea like the, the farmer who's who who shears sheep? Um, eventually. Spoiler becomes, alert! <laughs> oh, am well, I not allowed to say that? <laughs> yeah, you can. it's right. Oh, it's it's out in the public now. Yeah. It, but the, a farmer pe- can become like a metrosexual hairdresser. <laughs> it's just a really silly idea, you know. And 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 I I think when we initially said it and laughed, we thought that probably won't stay in the film, <laughs> but it did, and it's just a delight that such a daft gag developed into a really good storyline. Yeah.
5: You know, it's nice to be able to have your own daft ideas and take them all the way through, you know. Yeah. And not have them taken away from you by, <laughs> or replaced by other people's daft ideas.
0: <laughs>
4: Great. Well, thanks, thanks guys. very much. Uh, Thanks
0: very much, yeah. Thank, Thank you. you. Uh, so that was Nathan Wilkes talking to Richard Starzak and Mark Burton. We were lucky enough to go down to Ardman when they were filming Shaun the Sheep and interview Mr. Will Beecher. And you'll see a light box on the making of Shaun the Sheep. Uh, Will obviously the director of Offbeats, uh, the Weatherman, and, and many wonderful short films. He's now directing uh, series five of Shaun the Sheep, uh, and he was the lead animator on Shaun the Sheep the movie.
1: He's uh, he's moving up in the uh, in the sheep world.
0: He certainly is.
1: So Richard Stasik is no longer the director, I guess.
0: Well, as you heard him from the interview, there he's uh, working on the uh, Shaun the Sheep half-hour special that's going to be on this Christmas. There will be llamas. I like that as a tagline.
1: So keep your eyes skinned for Sean the Sheep Series 5 down the line. I think we're still on Series 4 as far as broadcast, really, aren't we? Mm-hmm. So uh, maybe a little ways away, but we've also got uh, the half-hour special. Plenty of Sean to go around.
0: And Did you see, then, that they used the Year of the Sheep in their advertising? Uh-oh. Should we call the squiggly lawyers? I think we
1: better. <laughs> <put> some residuals <laughs> coming our way.
0: We can finally retire.
1: I mean, you could call it parallel thinking, but I don't know. That's a bit of an obscure leap. <laughs> <laughs> you yeah, know, they're doing another, um, like arts trail. You know how they did with the grommets, oh, yeah. but with Shaun the Sheep's mm. in the near future. I expect yeah. right. we'll be seeing lots of you know fiberglass painted Shorns and all sorts of uh, uh, weird and wonderful designs. That'll give some colour to the city.
0: I think the weirdest and wonderfulest part about it. Would be the fact that it's a five hour queue to see a room full of sheep being one of the people who decided that you wanted to queue up for it as well and just didn't make it two days on a row, but
1: <laughs> I have literally no idea what you're talking about
0: <laughs> oh when they did the the grommets um oh that okay, and, yeah, and the grommets were stuck in an old furniture shop at the top of Park Street uh past the museum, yeah, they're all in one place, and the queue was absolutely horrendous, yeah,
1: probably nicer to just sort of see them dotted around the place, yeah. I'm not sure if it's Bristol or London. They're doing the show on the sheep. I think the sheep are
0: going around London. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, excellent work for charity as well. So
1: there was only one grommet in London, and it was at uh, Paddington Station. And it always looked so lonely. Yeah. Because in Bristol, like there would always be people like taking pictures of themselves with all the different grommets. Yeah. And then the one grommet that was an actual grommet is just sort of sat on the train station. Everyone's just walking past it. <laughs> Poor bugger.
0: Yeah. Well, that's London for you. Cynics. I don't care for plasticine dogs in London.
1: I ask you. So another uh, big stop-motion project on the horizon. It's been kind of a stop-motion-heavy podcast, this one, hasn't it?
0: It has. We do like visit stop-motion. It's what we do best in the UK, I think.
1: I think we got it down. This one is more of a kind of, what would you say, letter of love, homage?
0: I would. Certainly a film created with uh, an acute love and an acute knowledge of the action 80s action genre uh, we're talking about Mike Moore and his film Chuck Steele Raging Balls of Steel Justice and I think the title kind of gives away what, what kind of
1: it's a little uh, it's a little understated <laughs> As a,
0: it's a it's just this testosterone filled ride it's, it's, it's
1: every film from you know that's it's Tango and Cash it's Die Hard it's the others
0: lethal <laughs> weapon at the rest yeah
1: Die Hard with a Vengeance yeah. Things blowing up,
0: bad guys getting shot, monsters, guns, explosions.
1: Do they still make films like that, like with that abandon? There's like, what's that thing they do with like Stallone and all of them now, like um, or the retirement the, home version? Yeah, the yeah. the Expendables. Expendables, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I didn't. I haven't seen any of them. I saw the poster for the last one. <laughs> Why is Frasier one of them?
0: That's what like, I thought. What am I
1: missing there?
0: <laughs> Did you not see series twelve of Frasier? when he just went off. But he
1: just started kicking ass and taking names. But <laughs> this is all the all those great tropes of uh, you know, those great old you know, the the head muckadymak who can't take enough of the renegade's way of getting things done. But, you know gosh darn it if he can't get the job done. He's got the He gets results. Yeah. <laughs> the wise cracking sidekick, the I mean, it reminds me of stuff like celebrity deathmatch and MTV, and kind of that very American take on Stop stopmo. Mm-hmm. Little dasher Will Vinton, perhaps.
0: Yes, yeah. But
1: you know, also the kind of it's also through that sort of filter of British sensibility. It's like the American culture as viewed by you know us quaint Brits. Says the whatever the hell I am, I don't even know what nation I'm from. Yes, if anyone has any ideas, feel free to mail them in. <laughs> <laughs> now, Chuck Steele has uh, has already taken shape as a short film. It has. I caught it on, I believe, Film 4 a few months back. Quite a fun little film it is too, but I think they have grander designs for it. Is that right?
0: That's right. The, the film, you can actually um, buy the film on Vimeo for like a pound. It is well worth that. It, it's just a wonderful film. I mm. would recommend anyone grabbing, grabbing hold of it and watching it if they're into their action films or if they're just into good stop motion. Mm-hmm. It was hard for me to believe that this was all created by one man in his basement until he got given some more money, and then he's expanded it.
6: Mm-hmm.
0: And as you, as you just alluded to, Ben, it's expanded even further, because this film was uh, like a, a kind of gateway, really, to a much bigger a feature film project uh, starring the Chuck Steele character called Night of the Trampires. Mm-hmm. I don't know what, what the title gives away, but uh, it sounds interesting.
1: I'm guessing like Homeless Vampires. Perhaps.
0: <laughs> Is that too literal? <laughs> I, 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 we, we shall see then. We shall, we shall see and be surprised. But yeah, they're working on that at the moment. And you can follow Chuck Steele on Twitter and, and Facebook and all that for updates. But yeah, they're currently working on the film and they've just started... I think calling out for jobs. So if you're listening to this and you're, and you're into stop motion, and uh, there's, they're often calling out for, for jobs, and the, t- the production crew is growing, mm-hmm. so keep an eye on the, the Facebook and Twitter and everything, and, uh, and you might find yourself winging your way to Wales to create a uh, be part of the Chuck Steel story.
1: If this podcast serves as the springboard for anyone's career, let us know. We can uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think we've gotten a couple <laughs> of people some gigs once in a while, so who knows. <laughs> Tell them, Squiggly sent you, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and don't f up because we've got a reputation to uphold. <laughs> well, who better to describe the 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 adventures of Mr. Chuck Steele than Mike Mort himself, the director? Why don't we uh, turn it over to him?
0: Mike Mort, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today. Recently, you uh, have created, uh, directed, and just about everything else on a fantastic short film, which has been on uh, film for. Um, and he's now available online, uh, called Chuck Steele. And, uh, I'm looking forward to finding out a little bit more about that. But first of all, how are you? I'm
6: good. Uh, thanks, Steve. Um, yeah, Chuck Steele is, is a character that's been with me for quite a long time. Um, it's, it's something that I drew in my English book. Uh, so it's, it's been well over 20 years in the making, this, um, and the short film was a combination of me trying to get this idea finally finally made, really.
0: So 20 years in the making, its uh, it seems like quite well, a long time.
6: Yeah, I mean, the the earliest Chuck Steele film that I've done was when I was about 15, which was a Super 8 Chuck Steele film called Armageddon Time. And it was way before I'd done anything else or gone to college even. Um, and that's where the character first sort of appeared, uh, other than in my in my English book in school but um, three, three years after that then I decided to do another uh, Super 8 film which was uh, called Hard as Hell and that was in my college time in Newport, Newport Film School. Mm-hmm. So the, the, the character's have been with me for a, for a good while, I think it's partially my alter ego but you know, it, it's in a fantasy world. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Clear, yeah. Clearly influenced by the films of the 80s. Can you tell us a little bit about your influences for, for making this kind of testosterone fest of a film? Yeah, I mean, my, my, um, my
6: uh, main sort of, uh, the, the, the films that I watch and still watch now, my favourite films are all from the 80s, because that's when I grew up and got into filmmaking and Watching films, and although I uh, although I still watch a lot of sort of fantasy and action films now, with uh, after CGI came in, I think something got a bit lost for me. So st- I still watch those old films. The action films are where they used to do the gunfire for real and explosions for real and things like that. And also the sort of like the old school horror films where you'd have lots of creatures uh, on set, you know, actual you know um, prosthetics and animatronics and. Stop motion creatures as well. Um, so all of those films from the eighties were were a big influence on 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 Chuck Steele. I think when when I first done the uh, the Super Eight films back, in, which was back in the eighties, actually they, they weren't so. Um, I guess they weren't so much of a homage back then. It was just me making a film with a character in it. But this this latest film because t- a lot of time has passed. I've sort of all of these ideas that were sort of stuck in my head over the years came out in the one in the one fifteen-minute film, and because they were all sort of, it was all based around that eighties vibe. Um, it does feel definitely more like a homage, you know. Although it's, def- it's definitely not a spoof. <laughs> I know that
0: it's it's extremely close. I was going to ask you. I mean, it's it's difficult to see where where the lines drawn between actual spoof. Or uh, well, not actual spoof, actual homage, and 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 the director who just absolutely adores uh, this style of filmmaking. It kind of reminded me of of Lee Hardcastle's work in a sense that Lee is a a horror filmmaker that uses animation. It seems to me that you're um, an action filmmaker that uses animation. Yeah, yeah. I
6: mean, the film isn't isn't. Um Although I use the word homage, it it wasn't wasn't the intention of when I set out to make a homage or or anything like that. It was just all of these things that I loved about films and all these sort of ideas that sort of in my head about what I'd like to do in stop motion animation. And over the years, I'd tried to get this project off the ground in various ways, Um, and it it had a few false starts and um, you know it it dead ends, but. I didn't, I didn't sort of give up on it although just before I started this short film uh, I did get to a point where I was slightly I thought oh, I'm never going to get this made so I was on the point of putting me on the shelf forever but something spurred me on I think <laughs> it sounds ridiculous but I think I, I watched uh, it was when the first Expendables came out Right. Because, I could, because I could see all those 80s action heroes having another crack in it. I thought, well, I'll give it one more shot and see see if I can do this on my own in my basement. Old school, like, like I used to make the Super 8 films, you know. Um, gradually, the um, as I started and I made made some of the models, well, I made puppets on the set. And, and then the... Um, I had a bit of luck with the, with the project then, and we got some uh, an actual bit of funding from through a, a colleague friend, um, producer a friend of mine, uh, Joe Demore, who uh, introduced me to a producer friend of his, or Rupert Lywood, who happened to be a big fan of the Gogs, which I had done many years ago. Um, and Rupert then helped uh, fund the, the short, and is now the key funder on the feature
0: film as well. Excellent. Um, I, I was going to, I was going to ask a little bit about the film I mean what you were saying there about making it in your basement because I watched the film and was incredibly impressed with the production quality the production value, and I was expecting at the end to see you know a huge kind of list of of uh, amateur builders and, 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 and voice artists and and everything that it takes to make an action film or to make an animation of that quality. Uh, set builders, etc., and to find like your name on practically everything. And it seems to me, it seems to be uh, that you made it with just a load of mates in a basement. Is that true? I mean, how? What was the animation production process like?
6: Well, yeah, that that is true. We um, when when I started, it was just myself. So I had I had armatures left over from various jobs I'd done over the years, commercials and that. And I, I pulled them apart and re, re, reconditioned them and created the puppets from, from those. And that, that was just myself then at that point. Um, but I had a, a, a friend of mine who I'd worked with over the years called Dave Fetti, who's a good model maker. He he was coming in and helping me um, with the props and things like that, and the little robot character. Um, and then I started building the set uh, in my basement, which i I converted into a sort of working studio space workshop type thing. And uh, just clapped off of that. And I had the shell of the set built. And was just starting to detail it and put all the the sort of um, gantries in there and the barrels and all that sort of stuff. When That's when I happened to have that bit of luck with the funding. And I was able to bring in more people then. So you'll see on the credits there's a list of people who came in at that point and um, they 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 helped me
0: pretty much get everything uh finished and ready to shoot you know good stuff perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your animation influences because the the style and the sort of quality of the work it it, it kind of if i were to describe the film to anyone i would i wouldn't compare it to aardman because obviously that'd be the easiest no. thing to do because people always compare uh, stop motion to aardman i'd say it was like um it was like will vinton or something like that. I mean, do you yeah. have specific um, uh, specific heroes of animation that you kind of refer to?
6: Um, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm not, like, strangely, I'm not, like, a huge, uh, I, I, I like animation and I've followed it over the years, but I I mean, I, I always prefer live action films, but I've always, uh, I've always sort of made my own films, it might be a might be partially because when I was younger making films, that's that's the only option I had is to make films on on a small scale on it with, with models, and I sort of continue do that through my career. But my influences have always been feature films, um, and I've all, in terms of animation, I guess the thing the things that used to inspire me and well still do it Ray Harryhausen and um, Bill Tippett's work, you know, mm-hmm. which is much more effects based. Uh, the actual claymation side of things, I'd say Wilbington probably is, is is an influence more than more than uh, any other uh, in terms of the claymation
3: faces and
0: things like that. You talking there about about special effects and things like that? Does the film employ uh, special effects with regards to there's a there's a transformation scene? I don't want to give away too much, but there's this transformation scene. Does that involve uh, some kind of practical effect, or is that animated?
6: It's all stop motion,
0: and um, we, we did it in a way, if, if you think of like how they would have, the way I approached lots of things in the film was, how would they have approached this in the 80s if this was a live action
6: monster film, or, or a live action action film? Mm-hmm. And so we, we made little heads that were animatable to, to stretch and and sort of mutate, you know, and bits would pop out of them and things like that. So there were sort of mechanisms inside them. And all of these sort of images you can see on the website where you, there's, there's uh, making of uh, stills and things
0: like that. We kind of give away all the tricks on there. <laughs> Good, a little glimpse behind the scenes. That's what we love uh, on Squiggly. Um, so perhaps we should talk a little bit more about the actual character of Chuck Steele and the scenario that he's in, and and, uh, and Jack and 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 the rest of of the gang and, and what ideas yeah. you have for them for the future um because you've mentioned feature film there and this this short film is is a is a wonderfully condensed it's it is basically the 1980s condensed into 15 minutes uh that, that's exactly that's exactly what i set out to do with it i, I wanted to because
6: i'd actually done a 40 second trailer of chapter. Uh, a good few years back, uh, when I was uh, before the digital sort of cameras were were shooting uh, stop motion, and I'd shot it on sixteen mm or stuff like that, but it didn't really get across the idea enough of the character, and it didn't it didn't sell it enough. So I kind of it was a bit of a false plan. So I thought if I ever do this again, I've got to go full full tilt. And I thought right, I've got to make a a, a feature film in ten minutes. Originally it was going to be ten minutes, but it meant it went it went over to fifteen. But um, that was definitely the plan, is to make a little sort of almost three-act structure, but showcasing all the action and special effects and the gags that I would like to put into a feature film, really.
0: Excellent. So what will the feature film uh, be? I mean, I'm sure you can't give away too much, but uh, how are we going to pick up from where we left uh, Chuck well, the, the feature film is a, is a standalone
6: story. It doesn't link to the short, other than the same characters being in it. Um, and it's called Night of the Trampires. Uh, you can probably guess what's involved there by the title. <laughs> but um, it's, it's a B-movie action movie. So I, I, don't, I don't want to only make an action film. I want, to, want it to be full of B-movie references, full of like monsters and creatures and things like that as well. You know, I don't think we should hold back on this stuff. Uh, just go for it really. If it's an eighties uh, type field, you
0: know. Excellent. Um, is that been funded by the same people as as Chuck Seal proved uh to be something that the producers and things are excited to make more of? Yes, it's a, it's the same producers from from the
6: short working with me. Mean, we, we've set up a company to do to do the feature film for Chuck uh, for that camp, Night of the Trampirers and then we we did hope to to do more, but obviously everyone does in the in this uh, industry. But until you've done the first film and seen how well it's done, you, you don't know. But we've got to kind of uh, make this one first and see where we go next.
0: Yeah, are, we, are you going to be releasing it like like uh, as an animation, or will you be releasing it as a as an action film? Because uh, as you were talking there about about um, being an action filmmaker. And uh, and Chuck Steele's not something that I've seen at any animation festivals or anything like that. I mean, the, the first time I heard of it was when it was shown on Film 4 and then uh, when when uh, I got hold of the DVD. Uh, that's the only re- the way that I've been able to get hold of it. So it seems that you don't go through the conventional kind of animation circuit ways. Well, we, we, it has been in uh, quite a few festivals. Um, it,
6: it, We've we entered it into a lot and it's had a strange... A strange reception in some places. It's it's like t- festivals you think it would have got into easily, it didn't it didn't get in, and then other, others you thought it wouldn't get into it, it, it got in. So I think you're right. It's like it's like a live action approach to animation, and sometimes perhaps animated festivals just want something else. I don't know. I couldn't really get to the bottom of what the reason why we didn't get into certain ones. Um, some of the main ones in London, I think we 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 tried to get into. Well, maybe I shouldn't name them, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was, there was a fear that sort of we didn't get into that we thought we would, you know. But it, it wasn't a problem. I, mean, I, I was always happy with the results of the film. I knew it was the film that I was trying to be, and I think the the, the feature film will be even even bigger and better, you know.
0: I think if we all knew what was going on in the heads of people who select for film festivals then uh, I don't think we'd have much problem yeah,
6: yeah, the, mys- yeah. the mystery
0: that is that excellent um,
6: but, but, but in, in terms of getting it seen then it's like yeah Film Four. or so, it actually it, one of the biggest festivals that it, it, it's first airing was um, in uh, Flight Fest in, in 2013 it's got a we, we, we rushed to get it finished for that because we, they accepted it at a very late stage and uh, it was shown there, and then we took it back, and we actually refined some of the things, with some of the uh, sound and stuff like that, and the sound mix, and and then uh, somebody from Film Four saw it there, and picked it up for for a screening. Then on Film Four, and it's had about three screenings now, which with with pretty good viewing figures uh, uh, appeared. So, mm-hmm. um, it's, it, we were very really lucky that Film Four
0: saw it there, really. Have you heard much from an audience? Have you heard much from uh, are there fans of Chuck Steele around there besides myself?
6: Well, as it's been screened, we've obviously just been following it on Twitter then and places like that, and to see how it's gone down. And it's uh, it's had a good response, and we we've we seem to be gaining an audience, you know, uh, slowly. But like you say, I think a lot of people are finding it accidentally, like yourself, so. It's just it's just getting it out there, but we've we've
0: definitely had a good response from the people who, who like this kind of thing, you know. <laughs> yes, yeah, I can imagine I can imagine that being the case, and hopefully, people who are listening to this now on the podcast uh, or reading the interview online will be able will will, will search for for Chuck Steele. If they do uh, fancy mm-hmm. watching Chuck Steele, how can they get hold of a copy? Uh,
6: well, the trailer for it, it, we haven't mentioned this actually the. The, the name of the short film is actually Raging Balls of Steel Justice. It's, it's, so it's Chuck Steele, Raging Balls of Steel Justice and it's kind of like, that's what we do with the feature. It'll be Chuck Steele, Night of the Trampires. Uh, but if you want to see the short, uh, there's a trailer currently on YouTube which you can have a look at for free. And then or if you want to look out, look for more, then you can go to chucksteelthemovie.com which is a site that's going to be updated as we go along in the, in the movie making uh, process the feature process Excellent. and on there there's uh, there's a download page which you can pay i think
0: it's only 99p by the film really. bargain I, I was wondering about the actual puppets themselves i mean is it what do you use is it plasticine is it is is, is it kind of a a more kind of mechanic driven f- face animation system how do you how, what do you make make your puppets out of
6: it's all, um, the, the, the facial expressions are all, and the hands were all plasticine. So we, they were sculpted over a solid skull. So the teeth and the hair are solid and part of the skull. And the, the plasticine then is sculpted over, over that. And, and you sort of, you're pretty much sculpting um,
0: as you go, uh, you know, sculpting through. Wow. How, how do you keep the consistency there? I mean, is it, is it through replacements or do you just wait until uh, you.
6: No, the, we didn't have replacements on this. It was all, all the animators have to sculpt through, basically. It is a really time two and a tricky process to keep that consistency. And you'll see in the short that there's shots where, you know, we were finding the look of the characters in some shots, actually. But it, it, you, you probably won't notice that, actually. But it, for, for me, I notice it where they look slightly different here and there. But in the feature film, we do have to develop a little bit more of a, of, a, of, a, of a replacement technique
0: but we still definitely want to keep that sculpting through look so it looks very fluid you know? so would you would you approach something like what the people at Leica have done or what um what aardman have done with replacements by but still keeping parts of the, the like the eyebrows or or parts of the the the, the face uh, sculptable or something just to do the mouths or or the chin or whatever
6: well, we're going to try and keep as much plasticine in there as possible. We don't really want to go into the RP uh, rapid prototyping techniques because, for one thing, it's very expensive and it's a huge um, managing uh, task. To, if you want to go into that sort of slick, like, uh, feel for there, you, you know, it's a whole other whole nother ball game, really. Um, and in terms of like uh, just having mouths that are replacements, I think what we're what we're probably going to do
2: is have the lip area, which is, as a as a sort of section, which will be replaceable,
6: but always encourage uh, the animators that we get to have to have a
2: lot of um, plasticine sculpting uh, ability. Luckily, the guys on the shore,
6: the animators on there, all have a lot of um, sculpting um, experience, you know? Mm -hmm. So we need to find people like that just to keep the look the same. I I really want to keep that plasticine feel where, where we can, you
0: know? So, who would you have in an ideal world playing the characters, or are you quite happy to continue being Chuck Steele and Jack Shit and all the rest of the rest of the guys?
6: Well, well, we've had this conversation a few times here, and uh, you know, we do think, well, should you get like a famous main name in or something like that for for that character? But, but our worry with that was that if you got a big name in for the main character, then you have like uh, you'd have um, a character that was suddenly. That famous person and not its own character, if you know what I
0: mean? Yeah, Chuck Steele is the character.
6: Yeah, that happens a lot with animation. You put a big name on a character just to sell the film, and that character doesn't have its own character anymore. It's just that actor, you know? Mm-hmm. So, after the short did so well and everyone seemed to think the voices worked, we've decided that we'll stick with the voices as we did on the short, and we'll probably try and get some bigger names in on the newer characters that are in the feature film. Excellent. But they'll, 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 they'll interact with, you know, the main cast of Chuck and Jack and and, be, and be, they're not the forefront characters. They're sort of like not supporting characters, but there's a character who kind of buddies up with Chuck in the short, in, in the feature, and we, we're probably going to try and get a bigger name for that character at some point. But,
0: I, but I've enjoyed doing the voices, so I'm, I'm probably going to stick with it. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Because you're obviously very you're very Welsh. You've, you've, uh, that's a compliment, by the way. You're very Welsh. Sort of yeah. thinking, this, this man doesn't sound like... Okay. <laughs> Is this a voice that you're putting yeah, on yeah. now? <laughs> it's just
6: I don't sound... Uh, the, the American thing with Chuck comes naturally because I've just watched too
0: many 80s <laughs> action movies, that's all. Yes, Yeah. <laughs> It's kids in the playground stuff, isn't it? It's the you know we all ran around pretending I, to be Rambo.
6: I mean, it'd be it'd be interesting to see what what Americans think of the accent in there because we we have had some Americans watch it and and they thought it was an American, so that was that was a compliment, you know. So like, oh, all right, brilliant. So if we can keep that going on the feature, because there's a lot more dialogue in the feature, so it's kind of a challenge, but I'm I'm kind of
0: looking forward to that bit. Excellent. And, and uh, with the step up from short film to to feature film, how are you finding that uh, transition to do something on a much bigger scale?
6: Um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually enjoying it. We've got a huge uh, task ahead of us setting up the studio, but it's it's moving moving ahead. Um, we're going to we're due to start building the puppets uh, in January. We're just setting the place up now. Um, we're actually in a, in a studio in Bruges in West Flanders, and the, the actual filmmaking process of making a feature film is—it's it, it, fine because this this idea has been in my head for so long. I it doesn't—I'm not daunted by it. And the the, 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 the script has been—I actually wrote the script in I think two thousand and three or something like that. It was the one I was trying to get off the ground before, and then um, we've kind of come back to it. So I'm finally getting it made. It's uh, nice to sort of
0: to that point eventually well mike mort thank you very much for talking to squiggly today it's been a pleasure finding out more about chuck steel and very best of luck with the uh, feature film thanks steve thanks very
1: much mike mort there the director of chuck steel raging balls of steel justice and uh, the upcoming was it night of the trampires night of the trampires that's right oh my uh lots of fun for the Stop mo enthusiasts out there, as I assume a large percentage of the listenership of this podcast is. If not, well, why are you being difficult? We're we're doing our best here.
0: You can find out more about Chuck Steele um, and the upcoming movie by visiting chucksteelthemovie.com. You can also buy and download the film for the princely sum of 99 pence. It's a good film, worth a spare change. You get bang for your buck. You get every film from the 80s for your book, Ben.
1: Exactly. You don't need to watch any of them ever again. It's all condensed, all the highlights, all the best bits. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sort of puts me in mind, of. Um,
0: do you ever watch Always
1: Sunny in Philadelphia?
0: No. No, I don't. Sorry. I, it's, it's on my list.
1: I would I would definitely say treat yourself. Yeah. It takes a little while to get properly going, but once DeVito's on board, it's pretty great. But they, they one of the recurring things they'll do once every other season is they'll make their own sequels to Lethal Weapon. So that they're up to like lethal weapon, like eight. They'll okay. cast themselves as the roles. They're sort of the the key cast of this uh, show, and is absolutely mm-hmm. hysterical because it, it's in the same way that you know this film is made out of love. These characters who are very idiosyncratic, the fictional characters, they're actually quite unpleasant people, but you can tell that there's a sincere love for the lethal weapon franchise <laughs> driving their. You know, in this show, that's very incompetent filmmaking, mm-hmm. but it's it's incompetent filmmaking made with love. You know, and I think that the love, and probably because they people who make the actual show enjoy that sort of that genre of film as well. We can acknowledge that it's it's vaguely ridiculous, and like you say, and like this guy asserts, beyond parody because it's so silly. Mm-hmm. You can only really pay tribute to it rather than make fun of it sure. when it's sincere. It's more entertaining. Yes. It would be so easy to make a film about, you know, 80s action films, like lazily, and it wouldn't be engaging at all. Mm-hmm. I think everyone kind of knows that feeling of being with the, like, the nightmare client. I may have vented some of my own issues on that subject, but <laughs> they have this idea of, like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be like this, and it will reference this movie, and it will be do this, and blah. And there's no thought, well, why would it do that? And why do you care? And why would that work for the characters? And what you know? So you know when there's actually, when people actually get what the, making a film is, like what telling a story is. An homage is a wonderful thing to watch. You know, mm-hmm. I think that's why people kind of pile on Family Guy is that there was a sort of more so in the early days there was more kind of sincerity. I think about the things that they were making fun of the old TV shows and things. You got the impression that he actually really liked these old you know sitcoms and. Soap operas and movies that the show would kind of make fun of and recreate and things like that, mm-hmm. and then it got to a point where it was just like, oh, okay, let's pick a a pop culture reference out of the hat or out of a uh, manatee tank, as uh, <laughs> wonderfully absurd. <observed. laughs> I think that's why people kind of turned on Family Guy a bit, mm. while continuing to watch it and making it <laughs> very, very <laughs> lucrative. So the amazing thing people can do is they they just start hating something and just carry on watching it, yeah, and and seethe with hate. <laughs>
0: it's it's a weird thing about the way that um tv series and tv shows have have to contend with longevity now
1: oh they all go on too long yeah when it comes to comedy there are all sorts of areas like we were just talking about with sean the sheep and silent comedy and that's very sincere and that's why it works whereas perhaps some of the americanized output wasn't as sincere was kind of crowbarred in to appease a, a an investor and that may be why it didn't work so much but, you know, a, a really good part of Curse of the Werewolf rabbit was just it, how much of its fondness for old, like, hammer horror. Yeah. And things like that. Like, that really worked well.
0: It's something that Wallace and Gromit have always done. You know, um, watching The Wrong Trousers is, is like watching a, a Hitchcock film.
1: There was actually an exhibition at uh, the British Museum about, like, the history of horror. Mm-hmm. From literature to sculpture to, like, films and things like that. And the, part of it was Wallace and Gromit. Like they actually had like puppets from Curse of the Were Rabbit and like clips from the movie sort of playing nice. as an example of how well it had been taken on and, and put to use for that film. Mm-hmm. It's really nice actually to see, and there was some other animation as well. But it was really nice to see something like that being acknowledged for, like I say, the sincerity of what it's doing. It wasn't kind of like, oh, let's pick an old horror film and and just recreate the scene like really you know poorly or obviously, like just do it in a kind of empty way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I'm curious to see what uh, what's next for Mr. Chuck Steele, you know knock wood. It'll be a new uh, a new direction for UK produced stop
0: Absolutely, making a feature,
1: and it's also not for kids. Is the thing? <laughs> it's, it's probably the kind of major component of it is it's very very not for kids. Yeah. That's something that I think is going to be a big ask of of audiences and things like that. And hopefully people will be receptive to it. You always hope. Well, here we are at the end of our latest Squiggly podcast. Thank you to our guests as ever. Mr. Mike Mort, director of Chuck Steele. Visit chucksteelthemovie.com for more. Of course, Daisy Jacobs, director of the BAFTA-winning The Bigger Picture. You can visit thebiggerpicturefilm.com and find out all about their latest project that's just been backed on Kickstarter. I'm sure it'll be uh, just as compelling and interesting and uh, I'm looking forward to what they come up with next. And thank you, of course, to Richard Stars Starzak and Mark Burton the directors of Aardman's latest Shaun the Sheep the Movie thank you to nathan for going over and interviewing them
0: so don't forget if you want a behind the scenes look at the sean the sheep the movie being put together we've got our lightbox interview with uh, will Beecher and loads more lightbox videos there for everyone to enjoy that's over on the squiggly youtube channel that's youtube.com squiggly magazine you can also follow us on twitter that's at squiggly you can like us on facebook that's facebook.com squiggly magazine you can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S Underscore Henderson. You can follow Ben on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell. The Squiggly podcast is presented by myself, Steve Henderson, and Ben Mitchell. It's edited and produced by Ben Mitchell, with music by Wesley Allard and Ben Mitchell. Don't forget for all the latest news reviews, interviews, videos, podcasts, and everything else from the world of animation, visit squiggly.com.
1: If you take off my mask, it'll be
3: incredibly painful Uh, for you (laughs) off.